You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and today we have a very exciting guest. We have Public Safety and Solicitor General uh, Minister Mike Farnworth on the podcast to talk about the future of cannabis-impaired driving legislation in British Columbia and what he foresees happening with the 90-day prohibitions for cannabis-impaired driving, the future of uh, drug-impaired driving generally in B.C., We also have a really interesting discussion about the role that the community safety unit or the pot police or the cannabis police are going to play. And I know that that has nothing to do with driving law, but it is still very important listening for people who are in the cannabis industry, working in the cannabis space, or concerned about how cannabis uh, legalization in British Columbia is going to play out. It's actually a very encouraging discussion, so I do uh, Im- impress upon you listeners the the importance of listening to what he has to say, because I found his uh, comments to be very refreshing and very positive. And I'm not so scared about the future of driving or cannabis law in this province after the discussion. We also talk about how Bill C-46 and the changes to the criminal code are going to impact the immediate roadside prohibition scheme. A couple other changes uh, to the IRP documents that may be in the works, and also whether we may be seeing a uh, an opportunity for a reduced uh, period of prohibition in British Columbia after an impaired driving conviction as a result of certain changes under C46. And finally, uh, Minister Farnworth is going to talk to us about red light cameras and the speed on green cameras, or what some have termed photo radar 2.0 in British Columbia. Why he thinks it's not photo radar and how it's going to play out uh, when it comes to drivers. So, a very important and interesting discussion with Minister Farnworth starting right now. Thank you to Minister Mike Farnworth for joining us on the Driving Law podcast to talk about a lot of different initiatives that uh, he has sort of been responsible for um, when it comes to cannabis and what the future holds for impaired driving enforcement uh, in British Columbia. So thank you, Minister Farnworth, for joining us. My pleasure. Um, I guess the first thing and I think the majority of people who listen to the podcast really want to know about is how is cannabis and cannabis legalization going to affect provincial driving laws? What what have you got in the works? Well, I guess there's, there's two key areas where I think uh, change, uh, there's significant change. Uh, one clearly is the, the zero uh, tolerance limit for, uh, for THC uh, and, in fact, other drugs for uh, in the graduated licensing program. So that's for, for new drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I think that's uh, an important uh, an important change. And the other one is around the introduction of a 90-day uh, roadside prohibition. Uh, so those amendments were made to the Motor Vehicle Act in this spring, and uh, they have the ability. So instead of just a 24-hour roadside suspension, you can, there will be a 90-day uh, roadside suspension, which is a, a much more uh, serious and stronger penalty than the 24-hour driving prohibition. So those are probably two of the, uh, the biggest uh, changes 
to come about in terms of driving and, and cannabis with the passage of, and legalization of cannabis uh, in Canada and BC. When do you think we'll see the implementation of the 90-day uh, ban for drugs? There's still uh, work being done on that and right now um, I'd be looking at uh, later in the spring of 2019 okay. uh, in terms of all the work that's still going on around that and, and the fact that there's still issues with uh, some of the technology and things like that. Absolutely. And those 90-day prohibitions for drugs are going to be based either on the results of a blood test or on the results of a drug recognition evaluation. Is that that's the that's the the general that's that's the general approach that that, that we'll be taking as as government yeah okay so is one of the reasons you're holding off then because they're still working on fully staffing the labs and fully training the officers there's still a lot, let's just say there's still a lot of work that has to be done uh, and as as much as possible uh, you know we want to mirror the uh, the criminal code mm-hmm. of of Canada as well is it your expectation that these ninety days um, are going to sort of I don't want to say replace, but um, serve as an alternative to a criminal prosecution in the same way that IRPs do, or are they? Uh, I certainly, to be- I, I certainly think that uh, that's one of the uh, one of the approaches we want to take. I mean, the whole idea, or I mean, one of the reasons for these changes, and I think, is that we've modeled uh, much in terms of the IRP program, uh, and that was brought in in 2010. And that was remarkably uh, successful in terms of reducing the number of alcohol-related deaths in this province. I think it's cut it down by more than 40%. Um, I think we were averaging around 113, 114 a year prior to the introduction of the changes, and now it's down to about uh, 54, 55, something like that. Uh, And so that's, you know, I, I think people get the message. And I think that's one of the things we'd like to see happen uh, when it comes to, to drug-impaired driving. Right. And, of course, there's always the big concern, too, that if there's a huge increase in the number of drug-impaired driving prosecutions, that's going to have a toll on our court system. So diverting yeah. them out of court is maybe effective. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, and, uh, I mean, and that is one of the challenges that the government has to deal with these days is the issue of how do you approach things. I mean, in uh, just as a side note, it's one of the reasons why we've adopted uh, the administrative approach in dealing with with uh, cannabis regulation when it comes to dispensaries uh, as well is to, as much as possible, take an administrative penalty approach as opposed to a criminal prosecution approach. Right. And so and in that regard, you're actually creating sort of your own um, BC's own cannabis police force. I think a lot of people call them the pot police or the <laughs> cannabis police. That's not the official name. <laughs> No, the official name is the Community Safety Unit, uh, and that has been created with that specific purpose, um, and it's based within my ministry, Public Safety Solicitor General Ministry. Um, and the goal there, it, 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 it does two things. One, it ensures a you know a uniformity of enforcement across the province, mm-hmm. and it takes away some of the uh, the the burden off of off of local government. Uh, I know because when legalization was talked about, there was a lot of concern from municipalities about additional costs uh, that were going to be incurred. And when we made it clear, it's like, look, um, by doing this, you know, yes, you'll still have you do your regular bylaws as you would for any business. But the reality is in terms of of illegal dispensaries that are operating with a license, we will have this unit whose job it will be 
to uh, to be able to enforce provincial laws and federal laws uh, when it comes to to cannabis uh, that's that's not legal. Now, do those or is it anticipated that those community safety officers will have peace officer status? Um, they will be administrative, so they won't be wearing a, a uniform, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be about forty-four of them. Um, wow. That, and they'll I be based around, <laughs> but they'll be based around the province um, in, in a number of locations. So the Lower Mainland, um, Kelowna, uh, Prince George, uh, on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expect, you know, once they're up and running, and once they're the, the enforcement. I mean, the reality is, is the bulk of those uh, illegal places right now are in are in Victoria. Oh, sorry, not Victoria, Vancouver. Uh, with some in Victoria and then others in, in other communities. But the issue in Vancouver is probably the biggest uh, issue that they will be facing. Do you see any problems? I don't know if you paid attention to the court challenge that took place in Vancouver yep. about the municipal licensing of, of dispensaries. Yep. Do you see any challenge to uh, the ability of the community safety officers to enforce the provincial and the federal legislation if Vancouver continues to sort of be this rogue municipality that licenses things that are otherwise illegal? Um, well, what Vancouver has done, and I'm, I, it will actually help uh, the city of Vancouver because uh, what Vancouver did was they uh, licensed a number of establishments, a number of dispensaries um, in accordance with their policy. They've since uh, adapted, uh, taken what the province and the federal government have done and, 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 and allowed, you know, and, and are taking new applications from often the existing dispensaries, and you're seeing that with the one that should be uh, open uh, a week uh, this Saturday. And then there were a whole bunch of others that basically thumbed their nose at the city of Vancouver uh, mm-hmm. that started operating that were not licensed by Vancouver, and Vancouver has made it clear that they're not going to get a license, and that's what this court case primarily was about in terms of does the city have the ability to license and to shut those, and, and, and in essence to shut those ones down. And by winning in the, uh, the court, um, they're now able to say to us as well, look, this location, we haven't licensed it, we're not going to license, it doesn't have a license, uh, that will you know, then become clearly, I think, a priority in terms of the community safety unit going in and saying, hey, you're not licensed by the city, you're not licensed by the province, um, you're, going to be, uh, you're going to be shut down. And so that those that are in the process that, you know, the city has said uh, we intend to license um, and, you know, go through the obvious background checks and everything the province has put in place, they will be the ones then that, uh, that, that should make it through. Now, a lot of people who are sort of cannabis activists have been really critical of the idea of having an administrative scheme in BC to deal with cannabis licensing and, and distribution, and then also having, you know, the federal framework for that mm-hmm. because it exposes people to the possibility of two charges. Is your intention with the community safety unit that then um, no criminal charges would be pursued, that no investigation criminally would be done and nothing would be forwarded to Crown for charges? approval? Our, our expectation is that by being able to use the administrative approach, which is why it was put in the first place, is a far more efficient way uh, than the court process, which could be lengthy and uh, you know, uh, time-consuming mm-hmm. as well as costly. And the goal is to, to, shut, uh, you know, is to shut them down. It's, it's not to, uh, to, to drag unnecessarily through the courts. And so the administrative approach is in, is in many ways a far more efficient approach uh, to be able to, to deal, I think, with illegal dispensaries. And particularly, once you're starting to see more and more legal shops opening up, 
and they're facing competition from illegal illegal operations, um, the administrative approach, I think, is, is a much quicker way uh, to be able to deal with things because they have the ability to, um, uh, to seize product uh, and, to, uh, and to levy uh, an administrative penalty. Uh, and, you know, that's the goal. Is to, is to shut them down. It's interesting that you mentioned the ability to seize product. I know we've already strayed very far from driving, but Sorry, one thing yeah. that I, when I read in, yeah. in the rules around um, the scheme that you've set up in BC was this power that these officers are going to have to conduct warrantless searches. Mm-hmm. Um, are you concerned about constitutional challenges to that? Um, it's, it's actually very similar to what's currently in place for, for alcohol. Oh. Um, um, the uh, liquor inspectors, for example, have the ability right now um, to to seize um, unlicensed uh, unlicensed alcohol, and so those those changes and those provisions that were put in place were in fact modeled on existing practices that are in place for uh, for alcohol in BC. Okay, so basically in BC we get what with the administrative scheme and assuming there's nothing happening in the criminal sphere here, yeah. we get what everybody wanted in legalization, which is a scheme that mimics what we have for alcohol. Yes, yeah, that would be a, um, um, it, it, it's very, very similar. Okay, well, I, that, I, I'm actually encouraged to hear that, because when you read it on paper, sometimes you're like, what do you mean you can just go in and take yeah. things? Yeah, I, I, and that's been the whole, that's been the whole, the whole idea behind this is, I mean, is, is, is as much as possible to deal with these issues administratively. I mean, the ability to pursue a, a criminal prosecution is, is obviously always there, just like it is with, with alcohol as well. But the reality is, is the goal and the desire is to shut them down. And if you can do it administratively, then that's probably the best way to do it. Okay. I'm going to pivot completely back to yeah. driving yeah. Um, and ask a little bit more about the, the zero tolerance and, and THC concentration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any um, contemplation about adding in the future, once we've sort of seen how this plays out, some exceptions for people who are medical users of cannabis so that they don't have to be affected in that way? Um, I mean, right now, um, drug-impaired driving is not legal. And, and I expect that over time, you know, you're going to see laws refined um, and and in, and in part, it, I guess it depends on the nature of the medical cannabis that you're using. I mean, if someone's using CBD, uh, a CBD product, um, that does not impair you. Uh, so that may be different than, you know, high THC. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, you can't use, um, you know, prescription drugs, for example, and, and get behind the wheel of a car if you're, if you're impaired. And so it would be that, in that sense, that's no different from, from cannabis use. Um, you can't use it and, and be impaired and get behind uh, the wheel of a vehicle, just like you can't show up to, to work uh, and, and be impaired. But what about the sort of lack of a connection between impairment uh, and a particular blood THC concentration? Um, these, I think, these are the kinds of issues that are gonna are gonna work them. They're gonna they're gonna work their way work their way through, and these are the kinds of things that we're gonna have to deal with, um, you know, in the coming years ahead. I mean, and in many ways, it's very still very similar to if you're using prescription medications. I mean, things do impact people differently depending on you know your, your often your age, your gender, your 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 physical um, your physical size. Um, 
and I guess it, it, you have to start, you know, you've got to start somewhere in the context of, look, right. um, you can't be impaired behind a vehicle. Now, as we get better, you know, as technology improves in terms of measuring, as we get a better understanding of, you know, interactions and how things work, then you may see changes. But I think where we are right now is is pretty is pretty standard. Uh, it's going to be pretty standard right across the country. Are you wanting to put any any money, um, you know, because the government's just got tons of that, <laughs> um, into the uh, research in this area and looking at um, sort of how uh, if there is any connection between blood THC concentration and driving and even if age and THC concentration when related to the graduated licensing program, is that something that your government intends to do? Um, I'd say it's part of a... Of a, of a broader issue uh, around cannabis in general, and it's one of the things that we have raised, that I've raised with the feds at RFPT meetings uh, and other provinces have as well, is, is that we need to have a lot of research, a lot more research on not just, you know, the impact of, of THC in terms of, let's say, driving, uh, but also on the whole, the whole health side in general. And I'd like to see some investments made um, either you know nationally or uh, provincially, um, with let's say UBC for example, um, or you know other universities across the country, just into the whole issue of of, of cannabis, its effect on people. Um, that's you know long-term uh, research or research that's looking at all the, the you know the, the health-related issues, um, because I think it is important. Um, you know, there's been a lot of work done, but at the same time. You know, you're still in this battle about um, whether it's you know the efficacy of of of, of a particular types of treatments for particular types of ailments. Um, there's a huge scope now that uh, now that uh, legalization is here for that kind of work to be done, and it's something that that I have advocated for, and we will continue to advocate for, and ideally at the federal, but also potentially at the provincial level. That's really encouraging to hear. Actually, <laughs> I'm glad um, you. Also, very recently, some changes were implemented to the Motor Vehicle Act in respect of the 24-hour prohibition for drugs. Um, you've now created an internal review process with the superintendent of motor vehicles. Yeah. Um, was what was the impetus behind that? Um, I think there's a sense that 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 you should be able to we should be able to have a look at uh, and people should be able to go. Okay, I think there needs to be a review here. And see that everything's been done properly, and that uh, everything, uh, you know, that that proper procedures were 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 put in place, and due process, those kinds of things. Right, and without having to go all the way to BC Supreme Court yes. for a judicial yes. review, which is a clunky remedy. Yeah. Um, do you ex do you anticipate expanding on the superintendent's powers to review twenty four hour prohibitions over time as we as we learn more about cannabis and driving and as we see more of them issued, or is it going to be constrained to sort of the limited grounds that are set out now? Um, I think that's a good question. I mean, I don't, let's just say I'm not anticipating any changes in the short term, mm -hmm. but certainly you know this whole the whole public policy area around cannabis is so new that whether it comes to driving. Um, whether it comes to the health side of things, whether it comes to, you know, the cultivation, all of those things, I think you're going to see an evolution over the next two or three years uh, as, you know, one, society becomes more comfortable um, with the use of the legalization of cannabis, two, as we have a better understanding of the, the impacts 
Uh, and three, as, as more research and more data becomes available uh, in terms of, you know, um, okay, here's some of the things we thought would happen, they didn't, or here's some things that we thought might, and in fact, they have happened. And so, uh, you know, I, on this whole issue, I've been really clear, is that legalization is not the, is not the end of something, in fact, is just the start of something. Right. Um, speaking of the start of something, we yeah. are also at the start of some major changes, the most significant changes we've ever had in Canadian history to impaired driving law yeah. federally. Yeah. Um, and that obviously has to have a huge impact on your ministry and the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of have you thought through about what you're going to do to respond to these changes? Um, yeah, and that's this way. My ministry is is actively working on a number of of, of these areas. I mean, C forty six, you know, uh, brought in some pretty dramatic changes, as you as you just mentioned. Um, you know, there's the mandatory alcohol screening, and then there's uh, for you know for for drinking and driving, and then there's the changes with regards to uh, to drug impaired driving that have come in, um, and. I think they're going to have a significant impact, not just here in BC, but uh, but right across the right across the country. Um, I think one of the things here in BC is is that because we've got the uh, the roadside prohibition program and it's been well it's well it's been well in place, and I know other pro- other provinces have looked at what we're doing. We may, in some ways, uh, be less impacted by the federal changes around mandatory alcohol screening than, say, in provinces where they don't have the IRP uh, in place, like we do here, well, like we do here in, in BC. And I guess you're referring to sort of like an increased demand on the courts, or well, and I think that's one of the bi- that that will be one of the big issues. Is is mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I see from what the feds have put in place is the potential for a big increase on the courts. Um, Whereas um, with what we've, what we've been doing here in BC, um, I think has been a far more effective way uh, in dealing with, in dealing with uh, the issues around impaired, around impaired driving. Um, I mean, using our P program still does not take away you know, from the pursuing of, uh, of criminal code charges by any means. Uh, but certainly, in terms of people knowing it's out there, uh, we already know that it's had a uh, it's had a, a significant impact uh, in terms of reducing in terms of reducing fatalities. Are you concerned at all with the potential that we could lose the IRP scheme? I'll tell you a story. Okay. In, <laughs> in court recently, um, it was a hearing to determine whether costs should be awarded in the constitutional challenge against the unsuccessful petitioners mm-hmm. um, to the third version of the IRP scheme. And there was some talk uh, during submissions of the likelihood of a further constitutional challenge to the IRP scheme because of the mandatory alcohol screening and because the IRP itself hinges upon a criminal code demand. Mm-hmm. Are you worried that um, we could lose the IRP scheme and essentially the criminal code mandatory alcohol screening in one fell swoop and very quickly because of the way the IRP scheme gets things um, before a tribunal quickly and then can go straight to Supreme Court? Um, if I would be concerned if that was something that, that, that would be likely to happen because I think the IRP program has been very effective. Uh, and I would be quite concerned about that. Um, you know, I mean, we've made significant progress in this province in terms of reducing the number of traffic uh, deaths due to alcohol-related uh, impairment. And yet Canada still has one of the worst uh, rates in the OECD. 
um, I think just about a third of uh, traffic fatalities are uh, alcohol related. And I know in the UK, it's like half that. Um, and so I'd be concerned if we lost uh, the, the IRP because of changes at the federal, uh, of, of, of the changes at the federal level. Right. Um, is there any potential plan in place to change the IRP scheme to prevent that from happening? Like either eliminate the demand, which I think the Supreme Court of Canada sort of alluded to in, in Goodwin as being a potential. Let's just, I, think, I think that's one of those things that right now I couldn't give you an answer on Fair that. <laughs> but, uh, it's one that, let's just wait, um, if there is an issue, um, we, the ministry would be looking very closely at that. And then, you know, obviously working with the Attorney General's ministry on what the best approach would be. Right. Okay. Um, and as far as more specifics, like related to the day-to-day -day administration of the scheme, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the superintendent's, uh, like the report to superintendent forms. That calls for information to be provided by the officer about um, the grounds for the demand, the suspicion. Are there changes in the works? Are there new forms coming to reflect that? Um, that's a good question. Uh, my own my own view would be the more information you're able to provide, the better. Yes. Uh, and I think uh, that works for both the person who is, you know, facing the prohibition, but also in terms of the administration of, you know, not wasting time and causing problems. So I would want to see as much information uh, available as possible. Okay. And then um, I'm going to put you on the spot about something you wrote me in a letter a while ago. <laughs> about a change to the notice of driving prohibition oh, to reflect right. yes. the yes. seven-day limitation period. Yes. Yes. Are we going to see that soon? Um, I can tell you that the change on the form, there is definitely a change on the form so okay. that it is now highlighted that people have the ability to do that. Okay. Uh, that change will be taking place. Now, whether or not the, the, the time period will be extended, that's still something that... Um, of not yet that decision has not yet been made to extend it okay but it's under consideration yes i like that okay. <laughs> i'll take a maybe yeah. <laughs> um okay so the irp scheme from you know from where you're standing right now is largely going to remain as is and you're going to wait and see what happens with the federal changes before taking any action to amend anything that's correct okay. yeah all right. Well, that's interesting. It's, it's nice to know that things won't change because with the whole way that the criminal code's changing, at least from my practice perspective, mm -hmm. it's really, <laughs> it's a lot of change to cope with at once. So It's also a lot of change within ministries too. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard enough and it's challenging enough dealing with all the changes that we're having to deal with just on cannabis legalization in, in, in general, um, along with going, okay, Existing programs that you got may potentially, you know, have to change. So, no, mm -hmm. um, if I don't have to change, I'd rather not. Yeah, and I mean, at some point, someone's going to have to amend the Motor Vehicle Act to update references to section numbers of the criminal mm -hmm. code, even though, yes. you know, it's presumed to be referring to the new ones, but eventually it's just going to have to say it, which is That's a, painful. There's lots of legislation like that. Yeah. Um, what about the new changes to C46 also have the opportunity for people to enroll in an ignition interlock program to um, sort of cut down on suspension periods, similar to the curative discharge, which mm -hmm. we never had in BC, but not a curative discharge in that there's not a discharge. Is that something that um, BC is now contemplating allowing people to do? We are looking at that. 
Um, we haven't made, a, uh, as far as I know, we have not made a firm decision on that, but we are looking at it. And, you know, the, I, I generally think that that's not a bad idea to be able to, to look at, at uh, cutting down the time, um, if particularly with uh, technology um, advancing the way that it has. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you about yeah. um, is something that you, I think, uh, had a lot of questions about earlier this year, which was red light speed cameras. Yes. Um, and you had originally announced you were going to introduce them around now, and that date got delayed. So what's the update? <laughs> okay, there are 140 cameras, intersections that have cameras on them right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were initially on six hours a day. Uh, now they're on uh, 24 hours a day. And then of those 140, based on uh, data showing where the most dangerous intersections and, the, and the, the, the highest risk of crashes were, 35 of them will be equipped with the speed on green cameras. Uh, those have been approved um, in terms of we can go ahead and get them, but uh, so you'll probably see them um, up, or they'll be getting them. I think this spring, and it'll be later this summer when they are, you know, they have to be installed and tested, and, and then they'll be then they'll be up and running. My guess is later uh, 2019. No. Red light cameras currently that are in place in British yep. Columbia already measure people's speed. I just yep. did a red light camera ticket and I saw the speed, you know, displayed on there. So what's different about a speed on green camera? So the difference will be this is for those who go through um, a intersection at a very high rate of speed. So that's what it will be able to. That's what it will be able to tell. Okay, so it'll take a picture of somebody who's proceeding through the intersection in excess of the speed limit, even though the light is green. That's correct, and and obviously there's issues around at, at what at what rate at what level of speed do you do you set that at? So do you know where you're going to set the limit for what the what the speed is going to be that'll trigger the camera? That work is still being is still being done, uh, and in part, I think it may be determined by what we're seeing at those thirty five those thirty five intersections in terms of the the danger around um, around the, uh, uh, the the number of crashes. But as as we've said from when the announcement of the program is, is we're looking at, at excessive speeding. Right. Okay. Um, now, I asked a couple questions to um, David Eby when yep. he was on the podcast about sort of some of the initiatives that he was doing in relation to increased premiums um, and uh, traffic court, and he confirmed that traffic court's not going away, um, thankfully. Um, is there, um, I heard rumors from some police officers that there might be some plans in place to get rid of the ability in traffic court to negotiate tickets down to a registered owner ticket. So like a red light camera would be a reflected, um, not on the driving record and no points, you can in certain circumstances negotiate a regular old ticket down to that and avoid the sort of penalties is there work being done by your ministry to eliminate that okay if it is it's not reached my desk yet okay good yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of one of the tools sometimes that we use and I, I'd heard rumors from police so I was a little bit concerned that, yeah, yeah, uh, that that's the way if it is it's certainly not reached me so. Right, so it's not coming from the very top nope. <laughs> um, a lot of people are critical of this red light camera 
project because they think that it is another form of photo radar, and I've heard you in interviews saying it's not photo radar. Um, how is it different? Well, I think the big difference is, first off, it's 140 intersections where cameras are already in place, mm-hmm. uh, and they were only on um, you know, 25% of the time. And if you talk to most British Columbians, they one of their biggest things is at intersections and the way people behave at intersections in terms of going through red lights. 60% of crashes occur at red lights. Photo radar used to be like uh, a van by the side of the road um, with police officers in it that quite often could be, you know, in the middle of, of nowhere where there was no traffic and very little danger of an accident. Um, and I think that's when I say it's not photo radar, is, is looking at it compared to what we had in place in the 1990s. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, I think most people are supportive of, of uh, red light intersection cameras. One of the reasons that people were critical of photo radar had to do with the lack of a, a contemporaneous observation of the speed by the radar mm-hmm. operator, which is mm-hmm. part of the elements of, of working it properly. Mm-hmm. How is using the camera um, going to differ in speed measurement? I think there's a number of things. I mean, I think the key one is technology has advanced uh, so much uh, further now than it was, let's say, in 1998. I mean, the cameras themselves, uh, well, back then they were, you know, they were manual film-based cameras. Uh, now it's everything is all digital, mm-hmm. uh, and the clarity of, of images, for example, is a lot sharper, uh, and technology is far more advanced in terms of what they're able to do. So I, I think that's... Uh, one, probably the biggest significant uh, change between uh, then uh, and and now, and and so in terms of how it works, as, as you know, the instructions are uh, not the least of which is warning signs are in place. Going uh, this intersection camera, there's an intersection camera here, so there's a sign warning you going in. Right, which we uh, never had for photo radar. Which we never had for photo radar. And the other is, it's also in terms of it's not you have if you're in the intersection when it's when it's yellow. That does not trigger the camera. It is, it is in, you know, it's it's you, it's got to be red, and then you enter uh, before it triggers the camera. Mm-hmm. What? How does the speed measurement work? Is it is it point to point distance over time, or is it radar or laser? Um, I I'd have to say it's in terms of technical. I think it's laser um, of of how it's of how it's done, but. Um, and then point-to-point, point, I know we've been asked by some municipalities to look at point-to-point point on certain stretches of, of, uh, of highway, yeah. but we haven't made any decisions on that. I know they were looking at that for the Malahat. That's right. Had, That's uh, right. You, yeah. was it, your ministry did a public consultation about that? Yes. Okay. And, yeah, but you're but, still no decision. Yeah, no decision has been made. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, do you, are there, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the technology of the cameras. Obviously, whatever you know is more than I know. That's the um, way. It's not that much more other than that. I, it's the tech, all I know is here's what the technology does. Um, and it gets tested and, you know, and I can get more information. So that's right, no I was going to ask about like calibration yes. protocol and things like that. But that's all going to be something that obviously you're going to have in place yes. Um, yes. once the cameras go live. That's correct. Is it going to be? Is it anticipated that that information as well is going to be disclosed to drivers who are disputing those tickets? That's a really good question, um, and I expect those are the kinds of issues that we're going to have to have uh, answers to by the time things. Um, you know, do go live. 
uh, and I would expect we would have answers for that uh, certainly uh, closer to closer to uh, you know when we do go live with them okay. later, later next year. And then just like with the red light camera tickets, uh, it's going to be something that's not going to go on the driving record and not going to trigger points. Uh, that's my understanding right now, yeah. Okay. And do you have concerns then that it effectively becomes a cost of doing business for some of the bad drivers with high-end cars who can afford to drive that way? Uh, no. I think that um, between those and other penalties that are in, that are in place, uh, repeat offenders still get nailed. Oh, really? So there'll be something for people who repeatedly get the yes. camera tickets? Yes. Okay. That's, uh, that's new. Do you know what that's going to look like yet? Not yet. Okay. All right. Well, I'll be interested to see it. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure I'll be, you know, naturally very yep. critical. <laughs> um, what else uh, do you have in store, if, if you can tell us anything, for drivers in this province? Um, I think right now, uh, there's enough, I think, on, on the plate of the province in terms of the changes that are being implemented um, for uh, the introduction of the changes that the feds have put in place and the changes that we, we've put in place in terms of, you know, around the legalization of cannabis um, that, uh, that's, keeping, that's keeping us busy, keeping my ministry busy in terms of, of what needs to happen. So, you know, I think, I think, let's put it this way, I think that's enough right <laughs> yeah. now. I was going to say, you probably, like, don't have time to take on more than, you know, you we've know, already got. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's, there's plenty on my plate um, already. Um, I think one of the issues that's probably going to be most interesting in terms of the coming year and the next in the next few years is the um, is the drug impaired driving technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the oral uh, test versus the drug recognition experts uh, that currently uh, are in place, and whether that technology um, gets a wider acceptance, given that a number of police office, police departments have said you know they um, they're going to in essence take a pass right now. Um, Does that frustrate you? Like, that um, it's no. I, in many that's... ways, it's understandable. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is new technology, and 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 whenever there's new technology, I think, you know, uh, there's a number of things happen. One, every time it's used, or the first time, a few times it's used, you're going to get uh, challenges uh, within the legal system, and, and that's perfectly, you know, uh, predictable. Um, the second is, is that given uh, the nature of legalization and how big it is. Uh, and issues around testing, I also think you're going to find, you know, the, the, the standard, hey, I've got a better mousetrap. Um, and I think given the way technology is going, you're going to see advances in this field um, because there's a, you know, a tremendous amount of, of, of economic uh, opportunity for someone who comes up with that, you know, foolproof um, oh, yeah. method of testing. Are you open to trying sort of new methods? I know there's somebody who's developed a smartphone app that they claim can test for actual drug impairment. Is that something you're open to trying and, and letting the police try and potentially drafting legislation provincially to use? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Um, um, I mean, to, to me, I, I, to me, I think what what people, I think what the public want is they want to know first off they are very supportive in measures to deal with impaired driving whether it is drug impaired driving whether it's alcohol impaired driving whether it's texting you know uh distracted driving but i think they also want to know that the technology that is being used is accurate and that um that that the process is 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 fair 
And so if there's better technology that comes along and you can prove that it's better technology, then why wouldn't you want to look at using it? Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense to me. <laughs> um, I, it's nice to see, though, that your government is so open-minded about sort of doing things that are, or trying things that are new to obviously achieve the goal of, of public safety, but also um, to make sure that you're using the best technology possible and to protect the rights of people. I find that really refreshing, so... Oh, good. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, know, I know I've written some critical things since you came into power, but I, I do actually, I overall have been um, pretty impressed with the work that you've been doing. So, oh, well, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I would tell you that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, um, it's been really fascinating, this whole cannabis file. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I get some people going, you guys are terrible. And then I get others are going, you know, you've not gone far enough or you've gone too far. And I'm going, yeah. And then you, you try and sit down and you go, here's all the different things, all the different tentacles. And I was really happy yesterday, the guy from Vancouver, I saw him interviewed and he goes, we have to do all these hoops and all these things. He says, but you know what? Once I saw what was going on, I understood why it's being done. And he goes, I didn't have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, so I was actually very, I was quite, oh, that's good. So so we will we see you at the uh, big opening of the first legal cannabis store in the Lower Mainland? Actually, you will not, because <laughs> I will be flying to San Francisco with my partner, and he and I are going to spend three days in San Francisco, and then we are getting on a cruise ship for 10 days sailing down to the west coast of Mexico. Oh, wow. Well, have a lot of fun with that. And yes, thank you so. for taking time out of your like few days of your vacation before yeah. your vacation to join me on the podcast. Yeah, no trouble. My pleasure. Thank you again to Minister Farnworth for joining us on the Driving Law podcast. I'm really appreciative that he took time out of his busy schedule, and as you've just heard, it is an incredibly busy one. It's also encouraging to know that government is not committed uh, 100% to keeping everything in stone that they've introduced in relation to uh, cannabis-impaired driving to impaired driving laws generally in this province, and to uh, the issue of red light cameras, and that it's something that uh, that they are willing to revisit as there are challenges and criticism and as new information arrives. I think that that's something that we've been lacking for many years in this province in relation to our driving laws, and the idea that this is something that is fluid and that can change um, really shows, I think, the point of the podcast as well, which is that driving law does indeed drive the law. So uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you like us and subscribe on iTunes. You can contact me if you have any questions about driving law at 604-685-8889 or online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of driving law-related content. (laughs) 